All right, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open to the book of Jude. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Jude is in the New Testament towards the end of it, so it'll be towards the back of your Bible. Um, If you don't have a Bible, as Joel mentioned earlier, feel free to grab the one under your seat and take it home as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a Bible. And today's sermon title is Jude, Contending for the Faith. Well, today we're going to be diving in, as I said, to the book of Jude, the whole thing in one sermon. But don't worry, Jude is only one chapter with 25 verses. Uh, While we could break it down into small chunks and do multiple sermons, I want us to zoom out a bit today and to try to catch the main ideas of this book as a whole. Uh, We're actually going to be doing this the next two weeks with the smaller books of Philemon and Obadiah as well. So, before we read the text, who is Jude? Or Judas, as it's pronounced in Greek. In verse 1 of our text, we'll read in just a little bit, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Brother of James. Who's James? Well, James is the brother of Jesus and a pillar of the early New Testament church. So, Jude is also a brother of Jesus, even though in our text he takes the title of servant of Jesus. Uh, We see him listed as Jesus' brother in both Matthew 13.55 and Mark 6.3. Interestingly enough, both Jude and And James, and Joseph, and Simon, for that matter, all of Jesus' brothers, none of them followed Jesus as the Messiah before his death. Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him until after he rose from the dead. But the resurrection would transform Jude's life. And so that's who's writing this short letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that ended up in the New Testament. Jude, the brother of Jesus. And we know that it was written in about 60 AD. Who was it written to? We actually don't know. But we'll see from some of the content that Jude's assuming a lot of Jewish knowledge in the letter. But it's possible that it's meant for Gentiles as well. We simply don't know. Regardless, what I want you to hear this morning we can confidently say that this letter is meant for us today. Uh, I'd like to read for you an excerpt from an introduction to Jude by Mark Dever. He writes this. He says, If George Gallup can be believed, we live in increasingly faithless times. Gallup poll findings from 1991 suggest that 69% of people believe, quote, there are few moral absolutes. What is right or wrong usually varies from situation to situation. And Stephen Brent, he goes on to say, in his book In an Age of Experts, says that middle-class professionals are, quote, relatively skeptical about moral certainties. That was 1991. Since then, I think it'd be safe to say that we've seen even more of a paradigm shift on moral absolutes and moral certainties and even truth itself. 
And this isn't, I want to be really clear on this, this isn't just a problem out there. The statistics in the evangelical church aren't looking much better. I know I've referenced it before, but reading the state of theology polls, which are put out each year by Ligonier Ministry, um, it's a sad and sobering thing. Uh, Every year they go into evangelical churches and ask a series of questions to try to discern what people inside the church believe. Uh, In 2022, 38%, meaning two out of every five people in the evangelical church, agreed with this statement. Statement number 31, they said, Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 38% of people in the evangelical church agreed with that statement. Let that sink in for a second. Listen to the concluding paragraph of the 2022 State of Theology. So this was their conclusion. The 2022 State of Theology survey reveals that Americans increasingly reject the divine origin and complete accuracy of the Bible. With no enduring plumb line of absolute truth to conform to, U.S. adults are also increasingly holding to to unbiblical worldviews related to human sexuality. In the evangelical sphere, doctrines including the deity and exclusivity of Jesus Christ, as well as the inspiration and authority of the Bible, are increasingly being rejected. A rejection of morality and a rejection of truth. That's the exact context into which Jude is writing in A.D. 60. And it couldn't be more relevant for us today. How do we remain faithful in increasingly faithless times? How do we remain faithful in increasingly faithless times? Let's dive into our text. Jude 1 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. 
But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Our three points for today's sermon are these. Point one, basic Christianity in verses one and two. Point two, a solemn warning in verses three through 16. And then point three, perseverance and praise in verses 17 through 25. So point one, basic Christianity. Now I want us to see just how Jude structures this letter. While the bulk of it will deal straightforwardly and bluntly with false teachers, he begins with a great reminder to us of who we are. He begins the way most letters begin, by identifying himself. But he quickly shifts to helping us understand not who he is, but who we are, our own root identity. Look at what he writes. To those who are called. To those who are called. Today, when you hear the word called, maybe you think of someone in pastoral ministry, someone who's called into ministry or called into international missions as a missionary. Those are okay designations. 
But that's not the way the Bible most oftenly uses this term. And it's not the way Jude is using the term here. In the Bible, there's two different types of calls, both referring to salvation. A general call or invitation that goes out to everyone generally. Then there's what's known as an effectual call or a call that has an actual effect on the soul of a human being. We see this effectual call in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Romans 8, verse 30. Paul writes, And those whom he predestined, he also what? Called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're talking about conversion here. Or or the, the calling that God opens our hearts to, to respond positively to the gospel. First uh, Peter 2, verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, meaning Christ's, own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, what? Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So a Christian is first and foremost called by God. But Jude continues on. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father. Christian, do you know that you're loved by God the Father? Typically, if someone asks you the question, who are you? And they're not simply just asking you your name. You'll tell them what you believe to be the most significant, meaningful thing about you. Who are you? According to Jude, you're beloved in God the Father. That's one of the most significant, meaningful things about you as a Christian. More significant than where you work, what you drive, where you live. More significant than any accomplishments you've attained throughout your life. More significant than any mistakes you've made. You're beloved by the God of the universe. Do you know that this morning? You're called. And you're loved. But there's more. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Can you believe that? It just keeps getting better. Not only did God call us, By opening our hearts to receive him. Not only did he do that. Not only does God love us more fully and purely than anyone else in the world. But he keeps us. He keeps us. What does that mean? And why is this such great news? Why am I so excited about it? Well, it's one of the main themes of Jude, actually. He he repeats the word in verse 1. Twice in verse 6, verse 13, and again in verse 21. Five times total in this little letter. The word kept means to protect, to keep from harm, or to preserve. Do you know that your salvation is being guarded or kept? Look at what Paul writes in in Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. 
In him, meaning in Christ, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Your salvation is sealed, guaranteed, kept. It's the truth that we often sing here on a Sunday morning. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful to be kept by God. If it weren't for that, there's no way that I'd still be holding on to him. Christians, you're called, you're loved, and you're kept. You need to know that at the core of your being this morning. You need to rest in those truths this morning. Called, loved, kept. And I want you to notice that those are all things that God does, not things that we do. Called, loved, and kept. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So point one, basic Christianity. Point two, a solemn warning in verses 3 through 16. So now that we're rooted in our identities as Christians, look at Jude's command to us in verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. This word contend is the word ep, agonizo. You can hear the English word agonize in there. And that's exactly what we're being called to do here. One pastor calls it a strenuous athletic word. Like a 49ers running back striving to get across the first down marker. Agonize. Contend for. Strive. Work hard at it. And what are we being called to contend for? Not our own preferences. Not a style of music. Not a particular way of dressing. Not even our particular view of the end times. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This faith is the core message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he came to this earth. That he he lived a perfect, sinless life. That he went to the cross and died in our place as our substitute. Atoning with his blood for our sins. That he died, was buried, and rose again from the grave three days later. Freeing us from death, sin, and Satan. That's the faith that we're being called to contend for, Christians. We're called first to contend for the faith in our own hearts. And then with our families, our friends, our neighbors, and our co-workers. We're being called here to agonize for this faith, to be strenuous in our pursuit 
of the truth. That's what it takes in a world of unfaithfulness. We must know this. And the fact that we're being called to contend or or agonize means that it's not going to be smooth sailing. Agonizing means it's going to be hard. And you're going to face a lot of pushback. It's going to be hard yardage. And it's in that context that Jude turns to for most of the rest of this, this book. The context of faithlessness in which we must, as Christians, contend for the faith. Now, I'll try to walk through some of the highlights, or maybe better, lowlights here. Jude tells us in verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There's two characteristics that describe these faithless people who have crept in the church. Number one, they're immoral. Number two, they deny the truth. Let's quickly look at these one at a time. First, these people are immoral. Jude says in verse 4 that they're ungodly, that they pervert grace into sensuality. Do you see that? We discussed this a bit in our community group last week. There's, there's two different ditches that we as Christians can fall into, right? One, one ditch over here is legalism, believing that we can gain our own righteousness through keeping the law. But the equally damnable ditch on the other side is what's known as antinomianism, or a complete rejection of God's law and commands. It's the person who says, I'm saved by grace, so I can live however I want. That's a perversion of grace into sensuality. This characterizes a life without faith. Jude goes on. Look at some of the words that he uses to describe these false teachers. Verse 8. These dreamers, they defile the flesh, meaning they pollute their own bodies. Verse 10. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Verse 15. Deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Verses 16 and 18. They follow their own sinful desires and ungodly passions or desires. It seems like these false teachers were teaching, even in the church, that you could live however you wanted and still be a Christian in the church. Again, Mark Dever invites us to do this, to think about several of these words for a second. Instinct, natural, desires. He writes, today, these are very positive words. If you want to justify an action, behavior, or thought, call it instinctive or natural. If you want to characterize a life decision as good, say it is a product of natural desire. That's your trump card. People today assume that whatever is innate, whatever we naturally desire, this must be good. Jude says that to function like this is to function like an unreasoning animal. It characterizes a life devoid of faith. 
It's a life that prizes what feels good to you over what God says is good for you. Do you see how a life of immorality is a lack of faith? It's a trusting in self and in my own feelings instead of a trusting God. So these, pers- these people, first, are, are immoral. Second, these faithless people deny the truth. Look again at, at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They're rejecting Christ and his authority over their lives, which tends to result in immorality, right? Look again at verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. If we were to make a banner that describes our current day and age, it would be this. Relying on their dreams. Follow your dreams, no matter what they are. Defile the flesh. Do whatever you want with your body. Reject authority. No matter which way you look in our society, you see this. Rejecting authority is actually seen as a virtue today. And then blaspheming the glorious ones. Mocking heavenly beings. Do you see that anywhere today? It's all over the place. All of this is a rejection of truth to then place authority within themselves. It's the rise and triumph of the modern self, as Carl Truman calls it. In verse 9, Jude points out that even the archangel Michael didn't see himself as the authority, but the Lord. He's doing it right, trusting in God's authority and not his own. Verse 10, Jude tells us, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. You get the picture? These faithless, false teachers are living a life of immorality, and they're denying the truth. And here's the warning, verses 5 through 7. Jude gives us three examples or or warnings. Number one, the exodus. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude's telling us, look at the exodus. There will be destruction for the faithless or for those who don't believe. Number two, The second warning, fallen angels. Look at verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. He's saying there will be eternal judgment for those who reject God's authority. Third, Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude's saying God will punish the unrepentant sexually immoral with eternal fire. Let me summarize this. God isn't just a God of grace, 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 grace. He is a God of grace. That's true. And 
not but, and he's a God of judgment, of just judgment. Further, Jude compares these faithless false teachers to three different Old Testament characters in verse 11, and he pronounces woes on them. Look at this, verse 11, Cain, he compares them to Cain. We know that Cain chose wickedness over righteousness and repentance. Balaam, whose story is in Numbers 22 through 24, if you want to go read it. Balaam was an example of greed and deception for financial gain. So Cain, Balaam. Third, Korah, whose story can be found in Numbers 16. Korah is an example of rejecting the spiritual authority of Moses and Aaron. Do you see the case that Jude's making here and the warning that he's giving? He's saying there are faithless false teachers out there, and they're like Cain, Balaam, and Korah. God is gracious, merciful, patient, and loving. He is those things, but he will judge justly. He wouldn't be a good God if he didn't. So be warned, church, these faithless and false teachers, they may look hip. They may even seem relevant. They may be slick talkers who fit right in with the culture around us. And God will judge them. Make no mistake. Look at Jude's warning to us as a church. Verse 12. He says, these, meaning these false teachers... These are hidden reefs at your love feast. Love feasts were what we would know as the Lord's Supper or communion. In the early church, they would eat a full meal together with the bread and the cup in the middle of it, just like when Jesus instituted the meal. Jude is saying these faithless false teachers are among you in the church. They're hidden and dangerous. He says, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. When they're exposed for what they really are, he says they're really feeding themselves and not you. They're clouds that don't bring rain and life like they're supposed to. They're swept along and not solid. They're barren trees with no real fruit, dead, uprooted. That's the reality with false teachers. Creflo Dollar, Joel Osteen, T.G. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Stephen Furtick, the list could go on. They're in the church, hidden in plain sight, and teaching absolute heresy. Many of these guys live completely immoral lives. Nothing's changed since Jude's day. They may look flashy and sound good, but Jude's description here is reality. Maybe I didn't list one of your favorite internet teachers, but I would encourage you to examine their lives before following them. Do they deny the truth? Do they live immorally? Or teach that living immorally is okay. Jude gives us a solemn warning that God will not be mocked. 
He has and he will judge the faithless. And he'll be righteous in doing so. Friends, do you understand that warning you about this isn't judgmental? It's loving. Following these types of people will lead you to destruction along with them. They're tilling a path that God has clearly judged before and will judge again. Jude doesn't want this for you. I don't want this for you. And so we're telling you the truth. Point one, basic Christianity. Point two, a solemn warning. And point three, perseverance and praise. Verses 17 through 25. So, After reminding us of who we are as Christians, and then warning us of the dangers of the faithless false teachers, Jude then turns to give us some direction. What should Christians who live in faithless times do? What should we do? Let's look at the text, verses 17 through 19. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. He's actually quoting 2 Peter 3.3 here. He's saying, we shouldn't be surprised at what we're experiencing. The apostles told us what to expect, and it's happening. Then, look at verses 20 through 21. He says, but you, beloved... Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. See this. Verse 21 is actually the main command here. And verse 20 is how you do it. So verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God knowing that you're already kept by God. He's made it easy for you. How do we do that? Verse 20. And the yourselves in verse 20 is not singular. It's plural. So he's not saying, build yourself up. He's saying, build each other up in the faith. In other words, be involved in each other's discipleship. What's discipleship? Well, in its most basic form, it's helping others to follow Jesus. Discipleship is helping others to follow Jesus. Being committed not only to your own Christian growth, but to others' Christian growth in the church. That's number one. That's how we keep ourselves in the love of God. Disciple one another. Then, Jude writes that we should be praying in the Holy Spirit. Spirit-filled prayer. While some see this as speaking in tongues, most don't. There's a clear parallel to this text in Ephesians 6, verse 18. And the context of both texts seem to point toward spirit-filled prayer as this. Praying according to the Spirit's will. Praying according to the Spirit's will. It's no secret that I believe one of the best ways to do that is to pray the scriptures. If you want to pray the Spirit's will, pray the words that he inspired. Pray the words that he wrote. So, 
to keep ourselves in the love of God amidst a faithless world, we should be involved in discipleship. And we should pray. But there's more, isn't there? Jude goes on in verses 22 and 23. He says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. What's he saying? He's saying that there's a difference. There's a sharp difference between the genuine doubter and the wolf. The false teachers he's described and warned us about are different than someone who's genuinely doubting. With the former group, we should be pretty impatient. With the latter group, we should show mercy, compassion, and patience. Another group in verse 23 needs urgent evangelism. They need to be snatched out of the fire. And let me be clear. Only God can snatch them out of the fire. But we as Christians are called to be his instruments in sharing his good news. And in this... Jude gives us one final warning. He says, as you're trying to snatch these others out of the fire, do it with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I think what he's saying is this. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes evangelism can put you in contact with a lot of stained garments. Shannon and I had a neighbor in seminary who in the name of evangelism, ended up spending a lot of time playing music in bars. He eventually left his wife and his faith. Heartbreaking. Jude's warning us. We live in a faithless world. And yet the call isn't for us just to to cloister ourselves off from society like the Amish. But be careful. Be wise. Fear God as you're doing evangelism. Finally, Jude ends. And he ends not in downhearted defeat or or with a shaking of his fist at evil society out there. That's not how he ends at all, is it? Instead, he ends with a doxology of praise to Christ. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Friends, if you're a Christian, you're called, you're loved, And you're kept by God. And the faithless world is real. Be warned that faithlessness will lead to eternal judgment. God is a God of grace and of judgment. And this is where all of these threads meet together in the cross of Christ. The only reason that that any of us are able to have the grace of God is because Jesus took the just judgment of God on our behalf. The only reason that we're kept 
is because Jesus finished all the atoning work needed by dying on the cross. His righteousness is placed on us to never be removed. And how loved are you? Loved enough for God to send his only son to die for you. Those are truths that you've got to cling to, Christian. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first, we're glad that you're here. You're always welcome here. We'd love to have you. And we want you to know this morning that you too can have eternal life, a life of mercy, peace, love, and grace through Jesus Christ. And you access that not through being a better person, not through cleaning yourself up enough, but through turning to Christ in repentance and faith, through trusting in Christ as the only hope of your salvation. He's worthy of every single word in this doxology at the end of Jude. And we invite you to follow him today. It'll be the best decision of your life. So let's pray.